Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of the Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 136th show. Today's guest is Dr. Michael Yassim, author of The Edge. And Michael is a professor at Wharton, and I spent 10 years at Wharton, and I'm thrilled to have him on, and his books are always amazing. I've heard him speak many times in the Philadelphia area, and so we're very lucky to have him today. So, uh, Mike, please talk about why you became a professor and why you focused on leadership. So, Mark, well, first of all, thank you for having me. I hadn't realized this is the 136th show, so congratulations for keeping it going for so long. Good question to start with because we all have a, a kind of a, an, a, per, a personal story or a personal accounting um, which in many cases I've come to realize is not exactly linear. That is, at age seven, I wasn't thinking about becoming a professor. In fact, when I went to university in the U.S. University of Michigan, I majored in physics. I entered a doctoral program after that in physics, um, migrated into the social sciences, by chance ended up at a business school, and literally by chance was at one point asked to teach a course on leadership when there was nobody else to teach it. I said I didn't know a thing about the topic. And the individual who was trying to recruit me said, OK, Mike, that's a, that's a, that's merit because you've got a blank slate and you won't arrive with any prejudice or bias. So anyway, um, a while back, I was asked to then teach not only management courses, but to come into a leadership curriculum. And that's by dint of teaching forced me to write about it a little bit too. Uh, so anyway, Mark, that's a long-winded answer to a, a good question to get going. Yeah, and I, I, I wondered, since your undergraduate degree was uh, in physics, correct? Correct. And how has that impacted your thinking about leaders? My guess is a good number of people on our program right now as a university undergraduate may have been in engineering or applied math or physics or chemistry. And so when I say what I'm about to say, I think there's gonna be a kind of a, a resonant appreciation. It has provided a way to think, a way to discipline your thinking, which I have always valued. So I haven't thought about quantum mechanics and general relativity in quite some time, but having thought about uh, both at one point, and the discipline with which is, is required to think about what's really important in the way in in wave mechanics or or the bending of light uh, by gravity uh, has parallels in the world we inhabit. Uh, it helps does it does help in my view discipline my thinking. Even though I haven't thought about a single equation in physics for qu quite a few years. Were you inspired by Einstein? Is that why you got into this? No, I think I was inspired by just a whole host of people from that era. So for those who recall their college or university or high school physics, 
some of the great names of the time, Niels Bohr, for example. Yeah. Uh, who the Bohr Adam still bears his name. Uh, lots of European physicists back in the 1920s and 1930s, and then Einstein a little bit, uh, well, through that same period, helped establish uh, the, the canon now for modern physics. And I think I was inspired by the fact that they were inspired to try to unravel the universe following Albert Einstein's famous dictum, when asked what the purpose of physics is, he said, the purpose of physics is to make the universal, uh, the universe as simple as possible, but not simpler. Uh, it's a pretty good dictum. It's, it's certainly informed my thinking. Well, so now let's talk about why, why did you write this book? And it's a fabulous book. And I have really enjoyed reading this section on Jeff Laurie since I'm such a huge Eagles fan. So tell us about why you wrote this book. So, Mark, the origin of the book is, I think, my own frustration of thinking about leadership, what makes a difference, whether you're working at a hospital, a community center, maybe you're responsible for a ministry of government, uh, maybe a startup, maybe a big company, a frustration in, in the sense that in teaching courses on leadership, and I teach a lot of courseware and coursework on, on that topic, with many different kinds of groups. For example, yesterday, I was uh, telling you, Mark, a few minutes ago, we actually ran a program for the last day and a half on leadership for those who are already serving as chief executive officers. But I've also worked with high school students. I've, I've worked with uh, many, many MBA students and beyond. And I've come to appreciate, it took me a while to reach this conclusion, but my guess is many of your viewers uh, have, have shared the same experience. What served people well in the past, we should remember. So in thinking about our own leadership, good to look back on what Nelson Mandela did uh, when he worked to bring South Africa to where it is now as a multiracial democratic society or Mother Teresa for what she did in her lifetime. We also, in addition, need to bring into ourselves the kind of leadership capabilities which may not have been all that critical in years past, but probably will be critical in the years ahead. So the origin of the concept of the book and the title, The Edge, is we're, in a sense, we're always on the edge of where we are. Very important to look at where we're going to take a leap to, where we're going in the next four or five years, and begin to strengthen what may be not what was not required for our leadership in the past, but almost for sure will be required in the future. And just to say one more thought on that and then turn it back to you, Mark, really important, my view anyway, to develop the ideas that uh, are, are kind of generic, general. You can apply them in many situations, but at the same time to anchor them in real experience of people that you've seen or maybe met or you, at least you know the chronicle of. And thus in the book, I did focus on 10 individuals trying to understand how the past has informed what they do now, but at the same time, how they in each in their own case have taken steps to ensure they had the leadership for what lies ahead that's different from the past. Yeah, and anybody who reads this book, you're gonna end up reading it twice like I had to do. 
uh, awesome. to prepare for this. Uh, what did what did you learn about good and poor leadership during the pandemic? Well, it's uh, a question that my guess is everybody on your good show here right now has spent a lot of time thinking about over the last couple of years. And it really exemplifies the, the theme of the book, what got us to the precipice just before the epidemic or pandemic broke out in the spring of 2020. Uh, we were leading in a period of uh, stability and growth and uh, the world was still a, a little bit more unperturbed by trade wars and the like at that time. But coming then into the pandemic, and now as we come out of it, the same issue applies. What got us to the year 2020, to paraphrase a very famous executive coach in the U.S., a book he wrote a couple of years ago, Marshall Goldsmith, what got us there, what got us to January 2020, won't get us to, to, into the future, won't get us there. So as the epidemic or the pandemic swept um, out of China into the U.S. and elsewhere, um, for me anyway, the three key capabilities, see if this matches individuals' experiences who are part of the program, many capabilities beyond what I'm about to say were vital, but in my own humble view, watching people in action like you, uh, Elevated in importance was an ability to think strategically, to see around corners. What's it going to look like a year and a half now when we call people back to the office? So seeing ahead, thinking strategically, all that uh, bundle, number one. Number two, deciding decisively. Case in point, in the U.S., our university shut down almost overnight in terms of live education uh, in the wake, of, it, was, it was around March 20, maybe 21, somewhere in that area, when the National Basketball Association, one of America's great professional sports leagues, shut down its operations without anticipation. But literally, one day, the NBA shut down. The next couple of days, we shut down. And so we had to make many decisions, many way above my pay grade, obviously, <clears throat> on how to... Uh, keep education flowing, keeping the, the institution alive. So um, number one, just to repeat now, strategic thinking, vital. Number two, deciding decisively vital. And then num <clears throat> number three, we did have to communicate persuasively, frequently, often, uh, with detail and persuasiveness. So quick summary, Mark, to come back. I think what really came to the fore was the critical emphasis on your ability to think strategically, to decide decisively, and to communicate persuasively. And those are the ones, and everybody was counting on that those three things as employees and even, I guess, shareholders, hearing that from their leaders. People always debate whether leaders are born or, or anyone can develop the skills to lead successfully. From your study, of leadership. What's true here? You know, Mark, it's maybe the most fundamental question of all that we have to think about and somehow get beyond. My take, different from the take of many other people, is I've become convinced watching people like those in this program in action 
is that the world maybe has a few natural born leaders. Somehow it's in their genetics, or maybe it was in their early childhood. And again, South Africa's Nelson Mandela is maybe a case in point. I don't think he ever took a leadership program, but boy, could he lead, could he make a difference? Could he bring a country uh, through the revolution that he indeed carried to South Africa in the best possible sense of what it means to have a revolution? That said, I've become convinced uh, those natural born leaders are few and far between. Most of what we take to be the essence of leadership, having a vision, a strategy, communicating persuasively, honoring the room, making good and timely decisions, most of those capabilities we didn't have at age 10 and we do have now. And then that Mark really kind of begs the question, well, what exactly are the avenues for those, most of us, in fact, who are not natural born, but are capable, and I take this to be a universal statement, almost everybody can strengthen their leadership. Research says, and my own experience are repeatedly reconfirms, that there are really three distinct avenues to learning to lead, say, from age, age 10, when you weren't doing so much, to the fact that you're in this program on leadership and you lead in your own area uh, for sure. The first avenue is to become, this is prescriptive, to become a lifelong self-directed student of leadership. Shakespeare had it right. All life is a stage, or to paraphrase a bit on that, all life is a classroom if we choose to use it. And for that, I recommend uh, that we read about great people in history, read about some of the colossal failures in history. I'm riveted at the moment with the, the failure of FTX, the cryptocurrency exchange. What did he do that took the company off, off a cliff and drove it into bankruptcy? So looking at great examples, looking at some terrible examples, an incredible education is out there if you choose to actively make that world that we live in part of your classroom. Number two, more important, again, research evidence confirms this, is over your lifetime, pulling to you to work personally and professionally with you, a set of mentors and coaches, beginning probably with your parents or relatives, later on, maybe a high school coach, uh, I'm reminded by the title of a book about a very famous Silicon Valley coach called The, the Trillion Dollar Coach. It's about a person named Bill Campbell who became a coach in Silicon yeah, Valley. Yeah, I read that book um, by um, the, uh, the CEO of Google, right? He exactly. And, yeah. and two co-authors. Great book. Yeah. Um, and by the way, it's by a person who was not a great football coach. Uh, he had coached football at Columbia and didn't have a terribly winning record, but he discovered he was um, he was good as a coach, but he was uh, really good and he really enjoyed becoming a professional coach with people like St Steve Jobs and those at Google. And the authors uh, put it on the front cover, a trillion dollar coach. They think he added a trillion dollars to the market value of a number of firms. So anyway, coaching and mentoring can add a lot of value. And by the way, Mark, my own university, the business school, the Wharton School, really picking up on some of these issues a couple of years ago, instituted a program such that all MBA students now, all, we have 2,000 or so, 
MBA students are provided a prefer, um, a professional leadership coach. It's voluntary. You can sign up for it or not, but we pay for it. It's a hugely um, well-funded program, and it's and I just huge in scale. And I've sometimes thought we probably have hired all the executive coaches east of the Mississippi River because about two-thirds of our students have signed up for a personal leadership coach. So coaching and mentoring is number two. Number three, reflected in our curriculum, by the way, as well, is to do what I can almost guarantee everybody with us today has done many times over, which is to take experience, great experience, terrible experience, conduct the after action review on it. What worked, what didn't work, what can we do better the next day? The AAR for short, widely known, widely practiced, and consistently apply that to what you've done. Case in point for me, I did a profile a couple of years ago of the uh, then chief executive of the great Chinese personal computer maker, Lenovo. Lenovo, I think everybody knows now, is the number one PC provider in the world, the number one company that does that in terms of market share, went from nothing to what it did uh, it does today, in part because the chief executive, the founder and chief executive, he's moved on a couple of years ago, uh, named uh, Lu Chanzi. He had quit a state laboratory where he worked uh, as an engineer, just as Deng Xiaoping was beginning to open up China to the idea of startups. There was the time when if you had more than five employees, you, could, you couldn't keep going. Uh, but as, as uh, Deng Xiaoping back in the 1980s opened up China to start up opportunities, uh, Mr. Liu says, <laughs> put up his hand, I'd like to do that, had no idea what he was doing. But the main point is that every Friday afternoon, he sat down his employees, one during the first week, five a few weeks later, uh, now in, in an enormous number over the years, um, and said, okay, everybody, uh, we don't know much about marketing or pricing or how to reach people uh, in greater China with our PCs, but let's look at our experience this week and let's get better at it next week. So he said over the years, every Friday he did that. And without that, Lenovo would not be Lenovo. So Mark, to recap it, becoming a self-directed student of leadership over your lifetime. Number two, bringing in coaches and mentors, even if they don't use the mentor with a capital M in front of it as a term, but somebody who works with you close in and personally to advise you on how you need to work or add something to your leadership repertoire. And then three, the most important we know from lots of research is the willingness to learn from experience. The AAR is just one tactic of many to do that. But the three things taken together help get all of us unwashed folks at age 10 who don't know a lot about leadership to where we do know enough to hopefully get the job done. So you know, there it is, Mark. Uh, I'm glad Wharton's doing that program because when I was teaching there, a lot of the students actually needed leadership coaching uh, because uh, people around the world are counting on graduates from great schools like Wharton and Harvard and so forth to lead the way build the great companies or run the already existing uh, great companies. And many of the students 
didn't have the skills or needed to be coached on how to develop those skills because people's retirements, their mortgages, everything, so dependent on that, as opposed to maybe where I went to school, West Virginia University, which is a good state school, but not the same kind of responsibility. And you had to remind these kids that there was a huge amount of responsibility by accepting to come to a school like Wharton. Mark, you make an implicitly really important point that has really described our own journey over the last several decades. As a business school, we go back to 1881. That's when Joseph Wharton of Bethlehem Steel, a big steel maker in the U.S., gave a founding grant. Name is on the school ever since uh, 1881. I think, Mark, you know this because you used to be here. Benjamin Franklin got us going back in 1741. We've been around for a long time. But in the first 100 years of the school, the business school's existence, we didn't do a whole lot on leadership. Good coursework on finance, on marketing, operations, accounting, and well beyond. We began to hear, though, probably about, especially about 30 years ago, that that the people we were graduating were doing a great job in these functional specialties, but they were increasingly being called on to form teams or task forces or build teams of teams or set the tone or create a culture or a set of values. Um, they, they should be better at working with the, the environment in which they operate, becoming familiar with, for example, elected politicians. And so, um, again, about three decades ago, we began to put leadership in the in the curriculum. And then we realized it was so important, it's just as important as finance and accounting and everything else, that we now require students to take a course in leadership. Everybody can't pass, you can't graduate from University of Pennsylvania from our business school unless you pay your library fines and you take a course on leadership and pass the course. And that goes back to exactly what you're referencing, uh, Mark. The world, for a lot of reasons we could go into, became became increasingly dependent upon the leadership of those at the top of, of a hospital or a foundation or the head of a country. And therefore, leadership, all that much more important, especially over the last 20 or 30 years to get that one right. Um, I wondered, uh, um, Wharton grad who's prominently in the news uh, right now, Elon Musk, what's your take on how he's taken over Twitter from a leadership standpoint? I mean, you know, he wiped out the executive group and some people say, well, you know, that's smart because he wants only people um, that are going to be loyal to him. Uh, But at the same time, he just it seemed almost randomly decided because he paid so much, he was going to go cut the company in half. And now he's told the remaining employees that those who want to stay are going to have to give him 15 hours a day, seven days a week in order for them to stay. And I wonder, you know, what? how do you view what he's done and how he's leading? And do you think that way of leading will ultimately be successful because he's been successful in so many other ventures. So, Mark, I think we're all a little bit startled at how a person who had been such a extraordinary success in building, especially the automaker, Tesla, could have so badly stumbled as he then has taken over Twitter. So uh, we're just, it's lead news this morning. It's been the lead news over the last several days as he seems to be (laughs) 
taking his role of chief executive, I guess, a little bit too seriously uh, by taking some of the actions. That's that's a metaphor. He he may he may be leading in ways that uh, many of us are very critical of. So here's my suggestion to all of us uh, thinking about Steve Jobs, for example, or thinking about Mother Teresa, uh, thinking about uh, Mary Barra, who runs uh, General Motors. They're all part of the stage that we're part of. They're part of the the stage we're on, going back to Shakespeare here. And it's really good to study them for what they're doing and draw out what has worked and be very clear about uh, not accepting what in your view may look like it's working, but in your own conclusion is not what you wanna use to work your leadership yourself. And many people, of course, looking back on Steve Jobs' reign at, at Apple, an extraordinary run there as leader of that company. Many of the steps he took, absolutely brilliant, one of the great innovators of, of the contemporary era to say the least. On the other hand, some of the practices that he had adopted for himself are not what we want, should not want what we want to to lead in our own place. Thus, back to Elon Musk, great example uh, back in this category of making all life a stage or all life a classroom, watching carefully what he's doing and also saying, okay, what he's doing, I don't want to do, it's not going to work. And thus, some of his um, HR, his human resource actions of the last couple of days, for me personally, fall in that category. This is the opposite of what I want to do. And he helps remind me of the importance of knowing that this is the opposite of what I want to do. I mean, I, when I look at him, I wonder, he's great at startups where he's building his own culture. Now he's taking uh, somebody else's culture and decimating that culture, trying to recreate it. But it was always, Twitter's successful. I mean, it might not be hugely successful, even from a monetary standpoint, but it is successful over uh, time. Yeah. And so it seems to me that maybe he should have given himself a little bit of time before he started making these uh, moves so quickly and what he's doing. And I think when we looked at Steve Jobs, that if there wasn't a Steve Wozniak or a Tim Cook, he would have probably been abject failure. You know, he was great Mm. at the envisioning what the technology should look like. But we know we've had Wharton students that worked at Apple and said, you know, if you didn't have those guys uh, there to kind of balance him out, it would have been uh, catastrophic for those companies. So, Mark, two ideas coming from what you've just said, I I, want to stress, because in my humble view, again, really important. And that is, number one, leadership is an individual and a team sport. You've got to be really good as an individual performer. Witness Elon Musk in in the news the last week or two. In addition, you need to build its obvious point when I say it, almost trite when I say it. We got to have some great people around us who can do what we can't do so well, but that's why we want them on our team. In fact, we don't want somebody who's just like us on our team because it's a waste of a place on the team. So uh, good to have an extremely good inner circle around you, a, a top team working with you. And there's a whole lore to how to think about that. And as companies go from startup, let's say five or 10 employees to more than that, pretty quickly it becomes the art of leading a team of teams. So our new issues then become 
paramount in terms of coordinating them and all that. The other point you make, <clears throat> uh, for me anyway, really important, is that at least on my template, one of the separate callings for the leadership of anybody in this program, certainly uh, myself included, is the ability, for better or for worse, I do my best, I often fall short, I know that, to bring people into those teams that work with you who really want to be there or energized by you, understand the purpose of what they're doing with you, and thus recruiting, mobilizing, motivating, and retaining great talent is one of the great callings of anybody's leadership. And uh, I think, at least at, at the moment, the, uh, the the new boss of Twitter seems to be falling short on that particular criterion. So our purpose here is not to be critical or adulatory of anybody in particular. Our purpose here is to think about people. Tim Cook, a good example. You mentioned him just a minute ago. Steve Jobs, obviously. Elon Musk, of course. Um, in the book, I profiled a person named Trisha Griffith, who runs one of America's biggest insurance companies. Good to look at Trisha Griffith as well uh, for what she brings to her corner office. She's the CEO there. That just as a witness, we, we can look at it and, and think about it as an intellectual exercise, but pragmatically really important to get the main point out as a lesson to yourself, a memo to yourself. And so just to cap it off, Mark, I think with Elon Musk, like everybody here, I'm sure today, I'm riveted by every headline, every news, I've probably read five articles today, um, because it's just intellectually appealing, but also such a case 101 on how to lead and sometimes how to lead not so well. Yeah, and we're going to see how it unfolds, because uh, like you say, it's drama on the stage. So we'll get to see how that, and, and there are going to be lots of case studies written about this over time uh, as we see how what actually comes out. And it's good to have that, you know, I think uh, Tim Cook actually misses Steve Jobs because really they, they haven't been very innovative since he died. They're just, you know, improving the existing product line, but I haven't seen really uh, cool innovation like it was when Jobs was alive. And Mark, that gets us nicely, I think, back to this idea of the edge, which for me personally, I put at the very top of what I'm concerned about in teaching, writing about leadership, and that is, and this, by the way, came up in this program I mentioned yesterday for chief executives, we need to be very self-conscious about what it takes to get our job done now. Equally, we need to be very self-conscious about what we're going to need in five years, which is not entirely the same of what we need now. So I would encourage everybody to just do that little um, kind of fortune gazing ahead. Think about yourself. Let's make it the year 2027. What are a couple of the additional leadership capabilities you're going to need, knowing that the world's going to be different in definable ways? And I think that's an exercise we all need to perform in that for sure, what got us here won't entirely get us there. And you profiled some amazing leaders as we've been talking about. And was there any common threads like education, activities, environments they grew up in, anything that you saw that you'd say, 
you know what? They all pretty much have this in common from a background standpoint. You know, uh, the backgrounds were amazingly varied, almost as varied as the, I'm sure as varied as the backgrounds of the people here. Uh, very few of us decide to become a business entrepreneur at age five, although maybe there are a couple examples uh, in today's uh, classroom here. But having said that, I think the common thread actually comes a little bit later in life, the common platform, and that is as they, as these individuals are profiled, nine living CEOs and then one who uh, is no longer with us, uh, and they at a certain point made a self-conscious decision as they were given an elevated appointment or as they were brought into the corner office and in some of these cases, new chief executives, they made a um, an informed decision that they had to think about what was going to be different from their predecessor, who in some cases uh, were spectacular successes, but to draw upon your, your predecessor, but for sure make certain that you're studying the world to see what you're going to need in the next couple of years ahead. Case in point, just to anchor that, I profiled the person, uh, uh, William McNabb, Bill McNabb, who had taken over the stewardship of Vanguard Group when it was around $2 trillion in, under management, AUM. Uh, he, took, he took over Vanguard Group, one of America's great investment managers, as everybody knows, right in there with State Street and BlackRock and so on. And as he took over, he, he really came after two legends had stepped down. His immediate predecessor was a person named uh, Jack Brennan, who had demonstrated amazing success in getting his company from where it was to where he had it when he stepped down. And he followed an even more famous legend in, in this world, and that is the founder, Jack Bogle, who originally got Vanguard going back in the 1950s. Jack, uh, uh, let me turn back to Bill uh, briefly. Bill, who literally takes the takes the reins a couple of days before the global financial meltdown that was really precipitated by the failure of Lehman Brothers, September 15th uh, in 08. Uh, he was there, the US stock market dropped by something like 500 points in the day that followed. Uh, what a time to take over. He did say to himself in several different ways, um, I'm informed by the amazing history of my two predecessors and the teams they had built, of course, but I know that in the next five or 10 years, he will serve close to 10 years. I know I'm going to have to run Vanguard. I'm going to have to lead Vanguard differently. It's going to have to be a different world. And by the way, this gets back then to the issue, just as a side note, very important side note, as far as I'm concerned, that uh, Bill McNabb knowing that what got him there, what got his predecessors there, wouldn't get him necessarily fully successfully to the next stage or the next period of growth. He uh, retained the services of Jim Collins. Everybody in this program today has read at least Good to Great by Jim Collins or Great by Choice, or one of Jim's other books. And Bill McNabb asked Jim Collins to come out and advise Vanguard on what kind of leadership 
Jim has a phrase or a, a, um, a category of level five leadership, the top of the heap. How do we get more level five leadership in here at Vanguard? Jim, um, who's a rock climber, as a side note, lives outside of Boulder, Colorado. And he says, I'm not traveling. If you want to talk, just come on out here. So Bill, Bill McNabb picked up his top team at considerable expense, took him away from the company for quite a stretch, did this twice, actually, uh, to sit at the foot, so to speak, of Jim Collins, or they not physically at the foot, but to just hear what Jim uh, could convey to them to ensure that Bill McNabb, in the years that to come, could create the kind of level five leadership that would be needed going forward. So the common thread, one, we can come back to others, is that as individuals took a, were elevated to a higher rung, more is expected of them. The impact is greater from them. Uh, Bill McNabb exemplifying, I think the underlying point, at least for me, we've got to be self-conscious about learning the ropes, what's going to be required for the next stage to be a success in our own right. So leadership in that sense, continuous improvement to borrow from Toyota there is part of the deal. Well. So Vanguard. I'm sorry. Yeah, Mark, we, we lost your video, your audio for a second. So if you um, could repeat yourself. Yeah. Uh, so I was saying my uh, my former wife was one of the first 200 employees at Vanguard. And while she was there, she was there during the crash of 87. And to show real leadership, when the market crashed, Jack Bobo actually came down from his office and had all the senior leadership put on headsets and, and take all the calls just like everybody else. Yeah, and she okay. said everybody was blown away. And she said he was at the next cubicle next to her taking uh, the calls and answering people's questions uh, for them. So I think that really was strong demonstration of leadership because how many CEOs would actually come down and work in customer service? And she said he did this for a week, every day, all day, coming down there, answering it, CFO, yeah. everybody. Mark, and I think it's symptomatic of what Jack Bogle gave into the DNA of Vanguard. And by the way, th think about your own contributions. Hopefully in five or 10 years, people are gonna be talking about what you gave five or 10 years earlier. And what Jack Bogle of course did was to focus on what customers really wanted. Sometimes customers don't know what they want, so you have to help out a little bit on that. Um, so listening to customers, they wanted very low price, they wanted, um, predictable improvements in their in their assets. And Jack Bogle could say that, and he did say that. I, I, I had Jack Bogle into my classes at least half a dozen times, uh, so I've heard it directly. Uh, but in coming down and sitting with employees and talking himself with customers, uh, that says in volumes what no words can quite convey. And later on, Bill McNabb, with that cultural mindset created as the global financial crisis came on a decade later, uh, he said, look, we've, we've, we've got same thing. We've got to be in touch with customers, got to hear what their concerns are. And he also learned, by the way, at about that time, 
that customers were increasingly interested in exchange-traded funds, ETFs. The company was slow in the uptake and getting into that market, but as a, an acute listener, ear on the ground, bring the customer inside, as, as, or the, bring the market in is as, as the phrase sometimes used, uh, picking up Jack Bogle's DNA that he had left for his predecessors to absorb, Bill McNabb added his own additional underpinning or underscoring of that cultural value. And maybe, Mark, I'll just end uh, my, my thought on that one this way. I think we tend not to think about culture and tone setting as part of our calling as a leader, but unequivocally, the tone we set, the architecture we build is also part of the leader's calling. No, no question. And, you know, Jack Bogle, uh, if you ever did business with Vanguard, even after he left, people who had been around, grew up with him, would quote him and And would say in meetings, I wonder what Will would have wanted us to do. I mean, it was like astounding. It was like Chairman Mao or something that people would quote him and try to think about uh, living to his core values. So you started by talking about uh, in the book about public company CEO focus on total shareholder returns. And Jack Welch being named manager of the century for getting 31 times increase in TSR. What was wrong with focusing on TSR in, and in retrospect with the collapse of GE's business model? What, what do you think of Jack Welsh's legacy now? Well, for starters, I think TSR is a great idea. It's a great metric. It's measurable. Uh, it's carefully protected by regulators for what it what it should be or what it is. So all kinds, everybody knows this. Um, and this of course is the, one of the callings of boards of directors is to ensure that the senior management stays focused if it's a publicly traded firm on total shareholder return, which of course is a combination of the increase in the stock price plus the, the dividends that may be paid out. And that's what business is all about. And Adam Smith would be smiling at the thought that lots of enterprises are hot in pursuit and disciplined around producing, delivering TSR. So given the fact, my own view on this, uh, others may not accept it, that over the last quarter century or so, especially in the US, but in many other countries, I've seen it in China, India, Chile, and beyond, National regulatory authorities, not to mention private sector for publicly traded uh, company top people, have become very good at creating, delivering, measuring, and witnessing the creation of total shareholder return. That said, and this is one of the themes of the book, The Edge, um, we also now are in a new era where that's there but not sufficient uh, in, in several particular ways. So if we're thinking now about being at the edge, one of the edges I think is an appreciation for the fact or learning to appreciate that the lead, you not only have to deliver TSR as Jack Welsh did over his 20 years at GE extremely well, it has to be ethically and legally delivered it's always been a bit of a cloud over some of those issues, 
uh, at GE Capital, but let's let's say it was appropriately delivered at GE over those 20 years. Kudos to him for doing that. But also in the era we're in now, we know everybody, I think, in this program would probably say if we had a conversation that a lot of people are coming to the workplace, not just for the paycheck, if that was ever true. Uh, they're coming because they want to do something with their lives that have impact on a lot of other people for the good. And thus, we need to worry about TSR. In addition, we need to worry about purpose, how we focus on purpose, how we generate, how we deliver it. And today, lots of people are coming to work very worried about the environment and the kind of flooding that's followed some of the uh, hurricanes that hit Florida recently or have been hit by some of the fires that are widespread in parts of California in the months past. And therefore, if we are entirely focused on TSR and not focused at least to some degree appropriately on ESG, the environment and sustainability, I think we got a losing um, a kind of a, a losing model uh, that short-term, fine, long-term, I think we're gonna be in trouble. So. Coming back now to the edge, I think we're going to need to become that much better at not only TSR, but also about the environment and sustainability. We need boards that are independent and really good, my view anyway, strategic partners at top management. And certainly at, over the last couple of years, uh, diversity, both for instrumental and for equity reasons, really important. And one of the people I feature in the book, just to mention this point, and I'll stop on this, the chief executive recently stepping down at Johnson & Johnson, Alex Gorski, who's been, again, one of the visitors to my classes on many occasions, has always said when asked about uh, diversity, how important is that? He puts it very simply. I, I love the formula. If I'm in a room, let's say a, a team around developing a new product or maybe doing a $10 billion acquisition and everybody thinks like me, or at least one other person thinks like me, I don't need to be there. <laughs> that person doesn't need to be. I want people who think differently from me and thus will bring something to the conversation that's value added. So that's the instrumental side for equity reasons. Diversity is important as well. Shouldn't underestimate the significance of that. So, Mark, full circle, um, TSR, Jack Welch proved it was important. It's been widely accepted within the, the publicly traded private sector in most countries. That it's important. There are lots of flaws that can get in the way of doing that. But having said that, if we're going to lead, or let's make it the next 10 years through 2032, I think we need TSR plus. ESG plus, DEI plus, innovation and, and beyond. I'll stop on that, Mark. I'm curious about this. Why do some organizations, after extensive background checks and interviews, still pick a leader who fails? I mean, I remember HP a few years ago had gone like through three leaders in like, uh, like a year and a half time period. Boeing had some of the same issues. So what happens there? Where's, where's the failure? Yeah. You know, it's a really great issue for several reasons, and I'm reminded of its great importance, having sat through this program I mentioned earlier that we ran yesterday in New York, 
for chief executives and those who were due to become a chief executive, we had one panel discussion on executive succession and the interest in that topic was extremely high. And a lot of ideas were brought into the conversation on the affirmative side. It's easy to go wrong on that. And that's why we end up uh, with some people who don't last more than sometimes a year. My favorite example is uh, Mattel, the big maker of toys. It had five CEOs in five years. Yahoo had six uh, CEOs, I think, in about the same number of years. Hewlett-Packard had one chief executive, executive that lasted 11 months. A Southern energy provider hired a chief executive and fired him after one hour. So what, what, how, how's that for a disaster? How's that for a lack of vetting? So all that being said, uh, in my view, it's increasingly critical to get the choice of a successor right because the downside impact has grown as markets have become un more uncertain, more unpredictable. There's more writing on making a good choice. But what, what's, so, what's going wrong with these people on the board who are making these selections? Because supposedly there's some of the smartest and experienced minds. I mean, to get a CEO who lasted one hour or 11 months, I mean, it used to be if you were picked to be CEO of Hewlett Packard, you're, you were running about a decade. I mean, that was the expectation, right? Totally, totally. In fact, right now, the average longevity of CEOs, let's make it the S&P 500, is I think it's around a, a nine years. So it, it's a big decision. It's the biggest decision the boards make yeah, right. along the way by far. Therefore, uh, no step is, is wasted. And uh, just to illustrate the point in reverse, the chief executive you mentioned at HP, who came in, had actually not been interviewed by all the board members before he was so appointed. So turn it around into the tactics of executive succession. We want every director to spend some private time, off-record time with, with the candidate. We want extensive vetting by talking with people who knew the individual in her or his old role. And my kind of uh, kind of the A case for that, I worked with a colleague in executive search a couple of years ago, uh, and we wrote an article on the succession decision at a huge pharmaceutical company where there were two candidates that were actively being considered by the retiring chief executive. He said they were great. The board ought to take a close look at them. This, this company, though, hired my co-author and my colleague here, who is an executive search, to interview. This now is the detail of good executive succession planning and vetting. My friend was asked to interview all the people the company could find that the company could find who had worked with the three top candidates. So they early on expanded from two to three candidates, one much younger, much less experienced than the two more senior people who were the logical successors. And they asked this individual, my colleague, to interview all the people who had worked for all three candidates. And the final question was, if you were to make the decision on who ought to be the next chief executive of this company, who would you pick? Well, most of those 15 people interviewed picked the, the dark horse, 
the younger person, less experience, but had more in their view, tangible experience that was going to make them more of an inspiring strategic leader. And the board with that information, very detailed, very timely to collect, quite costly to acquire, um, was part of the package to make the bigger point. I think you can't overstress how important it is to get that decision right with a a hundred different steps to indeed get the data and the due diligence done. We have a question from the audience. What's a blind spot you had, Mike, that helped you pivot and that you learn from the most? I love the question. I'd like everybody to think about their own blind spot. And, and the second half is the key, key thing and what you learn from it. So this is the now the after action review. Yeah. So I'll be very car, uh, uh, brief on this, Mark, because I realize we're running out of time. Uh, for many years, I've been involved in outdoor everything. So hiking, skiing, and a lot of hike, a lot of high altitude hiking, and even some mountaineering. I was with um, a friend climbing one of Switzerland's uh, highest mountains, not the Matterhorn, but near the Matterhorn. And we were heading up. We didn't have a guide heading up to a small hut. We'd spend the night, get up around 3 a.m., and try to get to the summit of a mountain called uh, Dom, D-O-M, uh, almost 15,000 feet in elevation, uh, higher than the uh, the, uh, the Matterhorn there. Anyway, we're heading up. The weather's turning terrible. We get soaked. And then as the snow began to come down, as the rain switched over, the path to the hut, which was the safe haven for the night, was increasingly obscured and then simply lost. So we were in the middle of absolutely nowhere, uh, heavy snow coming down, a very dangerous terrain, uh, no provisions for an overnight stay. Fortunately, thank goodness, there was a message in this, the hut keeper who had gone to bed, anticipating there might be a few lost souls like us, had put a lamp out on the front of the hut. And from maybe a mile away, we could barely make out this, this beacon of hope, this light. We got to the hut. We were fine. Everything uh, came out well on that one. <clears throat> but I was woefully underprepared, should have looked at the maps better, should have checked the weather better, should have thought more strategically about what we were about to commit to because it was a risky moment. Enterprise risk moment is vital. And boy, that that experience has told me forever that um, managing my own enterprise and the risk therein is absolutely vital. You, I, I think <laughs> a section on risk management and corrupt initiatives to reduce cost and increase revenue was very interesting because it reaffirms the public's distrust of leaders of big companies such as WorldCom, Enron, Volkswagen, and Wells Fargo. What do you, what do we learn from this? And why do CEOs, especially of large companies, continue to try to beat or manipulate the system? And how do companies overcome the label of being a liar and a cheater like Wells Fargo uh, was? Right, right. You know, it's a good note to begin to end on because it was not even a note that we thought about. Let's make it 20 years ago. So today the phrase business continuity, a second phrase, enterprise risk management, of course, that's part of what people in both cases need to worry about if they have responsibility. How are you going to keep going if we get shut down because of a of a pandemic? And what are the risks out there haunting that they often are? 
but maybe not easily recognizable that can suddenly devastate a country. I did a book a couple of years ago on a on a terrible earthquake in Chile. Uh, you never know when an earthquake is going to hit, but if you're in an earthquake zone, you know sooner or later one may arrive. And anticipating that possibility in your own lives, at your enterprise, in your community, with your family, uh, I think it's become a good idea. And I think the world, probably everybody in this program, concludes the same way, to become more savvy about what can go wrong before it goes wrong. Can't stop an earthquake, maybe can't stop a wildfire these days. But in the case of uh, Wells Fargo, uh, we can stop improper unethical, and in that case, some illegal loan practices that are going to almost kill the companies, happen at Volkswagen as well with the emission scandal. And therefore, one of our callings is to think not only about TSR and ESG and DEI, to use those several acronyms, but what are the opportunities on the affirmative side and what are the risks on the negative side that we just have to be have to have it in our equation, part of our leadership repertoire. So, so concerned, Mark, I became um, about that, that I uh, did this book on the earthquake in Chile some years ago that was the sixth biggest earthquake to ever hit the earth, devastating to the people of Chile. And uh, in the interest of helping people think more about their own risk management, I spent a good bit of time trying to understand how Chile came back from the earthquake number one, and then put in place devices to avoid a catastrophe if another one of equivalent magnitude, another earthquake hit in the future. Quick summary, Mark, is I think we need as much ERM, enterprise risk management, as we can get. And that's part of the calling along with thinking strategically, communicating persuasively, and so on. Well, let's see if we might be able to get two more questions here. One question from the audience is, should experience be the primary criterion in CEO recruitment? Also, shouldn't CEO selection require unanimous board agreement interviews with all the directors? You know, I haven't really thought about the issue of unanimous agreement. And I think putting together data points as opposed to systematic thought, my guess is, Unanimity often emerges, but it definitely is not universal, and you still have to make a decision. If it's a universal set of accolades for a given candidate, that gives you confidence that the vetting has been the right kind of vetting. So uh, good luck on, on trying to get uh, consensus <laughs> built. Uh, hard to do, but it's, it's a desirable outcome if you can do it. And Mark, without really getting into it more than just to say it, Predicting future behavior, that's what we're doing. We're, we're predicting future behavior to deliver total shareholder return, to act authentically, to act ethically, to be able to see around corners before the world kind of takes you around a corner. Those are often qualities really hard to vet, but I think that's the calling of directors is indeed the biggest decision. Everybody says that, of course, you've said that. Uh, the biggest decision is picking that successor, maybe your own, and thus spending serious time in doing that vetting, talking to third and fourth points uh, of getting tri triangulation would might maybe be the metaphor, 
trying to know the person because you're putting the assets and the futures of a lot of people in their hands and we've got to get it right. I'm going to end on this though, Mark. In one person I profile in the book to accelerate that process, he had a successor in mind. This was the president of a very large regional bank. He decided, this chief executive, to take a three-month sabbatical. There was a separate purpose in doing that, but it's a very important related value of taking three months off was to give his likely successor a chance to try himself out. Uh, so the the apparent successor became the acting interim CEO, um, and he, the then still serving CEO and the board, learned a lot about the person, including the fact that this person was extremely good at serving as an interim CEO, and by inference would be an appropriate successor. That happened, that transition happened, and indeed the board was right on that one. Mike, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. Love the book. Wish we had more time because I have to ask you at some point uh, um, and maybe another conversation about Jeff Lurie getting rid of his Super Bowl winning coach and what we could learn from uh, learn from that. Okay, Mark, it's a great note to end on. One of the chapters in the book is about the the Philadelphia Eagles, uh, the Super Bowl year. And uh, without getting into it more than just to say it, it was about the formula that went into that great historic win over the New England Patriots. We still celebrate it here. Uh, the Eagles are off to a pretty good year this year. And so I'm hoping to do a sequel to that chapter. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you, everybody, for coming today. Uh, Mike, thanks again so much. I look forward to the next book. All right, Mark. Thanks for having me on. I've loved the conversation. Thank you so much. Have a great day and a great weekend, everybody. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.